two places this morning, Luke chapter 23 and Ephesians chapter 1. Ladies' prayer today, I'm always glad that ha- that's happening. And that'll be right after service. Very transparent announcement. Also, we're keeping up with the Toys for the Salvation Army, Treasures for Children campaign. That's going to happen all the way through December 8th. Keep in mind also that there's a Power Gospel Night here on Thursday the 12th. That's been shifted, but Thursday, December 12th. And we are having a communion service on the 29th. And Wednesday is when a couple holidays fall, so we won't be meeting on Wednesday on Christmas Day or Wednesday on New Year's Day. I know there's a conflict of interest on those days. So, I always love when the holidays are over. But anyways, one more announcement. I never do this, and I keep doing it. I never, never say never, as even James Bond realized that. Never say never again. Somebody's birthday is today. And I just have to say it, because a good cross-section of your family's here. Mark O'Donnell, let's wish him a happy birthday. Embarrass him. And uh, Paul and Sean are here. Paul's wife's here. So, happy birthday, you old codger. (laughs) I was going to say you old bastard, but he wouldn't... (laughs) He wouldn't... uh, Friends appreciate that, you know. The subject today is simply in love. I hope you are in love. And we continue in this, the fifth increment of the doctrine of the mystery today. And the doctrine of the mystery has to do with the appropriate external term, as I've called it, the appropriate external term. That's a theological term that Lonergan and others used, and it is for the divine missions. Now, term might be confusing, a confusing term. In this connection, it means an end or an ultimate or overriding goal. And there is a goal for the two divine missions. It refers to the objective of God with regard to all of created reality. And another word that might be fitting is the intention of God or the mystery of God's will. God's will is that that which was faithfully and fully obeyed by the Lord Jesus Christ will result in a redemptive impact for all of created reality and all of its time and for time itself and history itself. The culmination of his obedience was the endurance of the death of the cross. Now, Luke 23, 35, my translation reads like this. The people stood by watching, but the leaders sneered at him. This is as Jesus is crucified. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he really is the Christ, God's elect one. Please notice God's elect one. Notice for now that the title God's elect one for Jesus is scornfully and ironically thrown at him. 
as he's being crucified. But in fact, beyond saving others, God's elect one saved all and was saving all, even as those leaders were sneering at him, mocking and mocking, ironically and sarcastically, at that title, God's elect one. Not only was he saving others, he was saving all, including those leaders, by not saving himself. This is the just and the mysterious law of the cross. Remember Thesis 17 from Lonergan's Redemption, and I'll quote it. This is why the Son of God became man, suffered, died, and was raised again. Because divine wisdom has ordained and divine goodness has willed not to do away with the evils of the human race through power, but to convert those same evils into a supreme good, according to the just and mysterious law of the cross. Jesus could not fulfill obedience to the Father by saving himself. In fact, Psalm 22 calls him the one who could not save himself. Losing his life, he gained it in resurrection. But losing his life, he gained life for all humanity in his resurrection. I couldn't help thinking of Pastor Messick, your message on how Jesus Christ is the antitype for both Jacob and Esau. I thought of this on the way down, driving down, and I always like to turn off the radio and just have nothing as I meditate on the word on the way here. And I thought how, indeed, in Malachi 1-2, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, that Jesus fulfilled both of those types, and that on the cross he became what God hated. He became a curse. He became sin. The one loved by him and elected by him became Esau in that sense, became sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And we'll see this again and again as we learn today that the elect one and the beloved one are one, one Jesus Christ, and that election and love are one. Love by God and election by God are one in Jesus Christ. Those whom he elects, he loves. Those whom he loves, he elects. And God so loved the world that he gave his son. Notice for now that the title God's elect one is scornfully thrown at him. And as far as our exegesis or exposition of Ephesians 1 to 3, 1, 3 to 14 goes, and that's where we are engaged right now in this part of the mystery, because we're coming up to the mystery by an exposition of one of the most dense and loaded passages in the scripture that in the Greek text is one long run-on sentence. Paul would have failed grammar. And so, as a as an exegesis or what we might call an exposition of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 goes, it's profitable for us to first notice an inclusio that God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ is introduced as the one who is worthy of praise in verse three. 
finds a mate in 114 at the close of this passage in the concluding phrase, to the praise of his glory. One night this week, I woke up about 16 times from sleep, and every single time the phrase was in my brain, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. And this is the very phrase that envelops all of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. In fact, all of the epistle. The epistle is one long doxology, a word of the glory of God. Doxa plus logos. Doxology. It's one hymn of praise, as is the book of Revelation, for example. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And so there's an inclusio. The praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory in 114. It's also found in 112, to the praise of his glory. And in fact, to the praise of his glory is also found in 116 with an additional phrase, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Legalists think we're saved by works. Fetists think we're saved by faith. Biblicists know we're saved by grace and to the praise of the glory of God's grace through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians is unique. It is his primal epistle. The epistle of Paul to the Romans ends with a doxology, Romans 16, 25 to 27. The epistle to the Ephesians begins with one, and it's a run-on sentence. Moreover, the whole summary is doxological, like the book of Revelation, making the whole epistle one praise to the glory of God's grace. The outcome of the external term of the divine missions will be the praise of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from all that has breath. Check out the last verse of the Psalms in Psalm 150 and verse 6. It resonates in Ephesians 1.3, 1.6, 112, 114. The last verse in the scripture, let all that has breath praise Yahweh. And then hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. In fact, in connection with this, Paul's interpretation of Isaiah 45, 23 in Romans 14, 11 is remarkable. It goes like this. As I live, says the Lord, to me will bow every knee and every tongue will give praise to me. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. Through an exegesis, a verse-by-verse, word-by-word, in my case at least, in the Greek, we are coming up to what I call, or what is called theologically, the external term, or the ultimate overriding objective of God with regard to all of created reality. It's called the mystery of his will. So far we have this translation and this is my translation. I'll take responsibility for it. Ephesians 1.1 1, 1, from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to saints and participants in the faithfulness of Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please notice verse 3. Praised be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with the fullness of blessing in the heavens in Christ Jesus. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings, which is another way of saying the fullness of blessings in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Our full blessedness is from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father of mercies, according to 2 Corinthians 1.3. And he's the Father of lights, according to James 1.17, with whom there is no shadow or variation. And so our blessings in heavens, in Christ Jesus, are sure and secure. As the Father of mercies, he has, quote, saved us according to his mercy in Titus 3.5, compared with Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Mercy that he intends to have on all, in fact, mercy that he has had on all in Christ crucified. Romans 11.32. As the Father of lights, he has given us new birth by his own will. New birth by his own will. James 1.18 in order that we will constitute the prolepsis or the first fruits of his universal new creation, James 1, 17 and 18. He's also called the father of spirits in Hebrews 12, 10. And so our blessings are spiritual. Don't be afraid of the word. Spiritual blessings, all spiritual blessings. They pertain, in other words, to the Holy Spirit, who is the proceeding love spirated by the Father and the Son eternally. Love that catches us up in God's plan so that we become, by that love and by an imitation of God, part of the divine solution to the problem of evil in the present evil age. These blessings pertain also because they are spiritual. They pertain to the essential person that we are as bearers of the image of God, as those who are created in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10. In the heavens is precisely where our Father, our Father, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ resides in a central residence, as it were. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in that the Son is eternally generated from the Father, out of the Father's own eternal substance as consubstantial with the Father. That's theological language. But he's our Father because he brought us into being to be a kind of firstfruits of the new creation, James 1.18, which is the new creation of all things in Revelation 21.5. It is done. Our Father in the heavens, pater hemon ho entois uranos, Matthew 6, 9, is how Jesus counsels us to address our Father and his Father in prayer, in praise, and in thanksgiving. He, the Father of spirits, is distinguished from all physical fathers, Hebrews 12, 9, as our Father in the heavens. In an exegesis that's not theological exegesis, we might not dwell on the Father so much. We might just go, thanks be to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then get right to the spiritual blessings. 
But a theological exegesis stays on the Father and becomes occupied with the Father, dwells on the Father. Our Father in the heavens has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavens. All spiritual blessings means the totality of spiritual blessing. That fullness or totality of blessing or blessedness is called pan-to-pleroma to theu. You'll see all this in print when we have these printed up. Pan-to-pleroma to theu, which is all the fullness of God, which God fills us up with simultaneously with our coming to know the knowledge surpassing love of Christ in Ephesians 3.19, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God simultaneous with coming to know the knowledge surpassing love of Christ. And that has to do with the horizon of his redemption as well as the central part of his redemption, which is the cross. Our father in the heavens has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavens. Our father is also the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The father of our Lord Jesus Christ is called blessed himself, eulogetos. Eulogetos is used in Ephesians 1.3. It means that he is to be praised, eulogized, spoken highly of, acclaimed. And he has blessed us, same word, only in the verbal form, eulogeo. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings, eulogia. You see, the Greek is so phenomenal. And I don't exegete just to show off the knowledge of the Greek. The Greek brings us closer to the original inspiration of the scriptures. They were inspired in the New Testament in the Greek text. They were written in the Greek text. Brings us closer to the authors, brings us closer to the divine author. And that's why Greek exegesis and understanding the Aramaic and the Greek, as well as the Hebrew, brings us closer to the heart of the Father himself. And so these words all hover together. Eulogeo, eulogia, eulogetos. They are in the heavens in Christ Jesus. The blessings are spiritual. They are in the heavens and they are spiritual. As spiritual, they pertain to the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and comes out of the Father's own eternal substance as consubstantial with the Father and the Son. In Galatians, and this is important to note, the Holy Spirit is the blessing that comes to us. The Holy Spirit is the blessing that comes to us through Christ having been made a curse for us in Galatians 3.13. I'm deliberately loading you up this week because we're not meeting Wednesday for one thing, but I'm deliberately doing something that I rarely do, and that's loading you up with what's on my mind. Usually I stop and fan out something. Today, I'm giving you everything that's on my mind and deal with it. So, in Galatians, the Holy Spirit is the blessing that comes to us through Christ having been made a curse for us. Let me prove it. Galatians 3, 13 to 14, my translation reads like this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung upon a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham, listen, would come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promise of the Spirit through 
Christ's faithfulness. The blessing is the promise of the spirit or the promised spirit. So notice the juxtaposition in your own time, if you want, in Galatians 3, 13 to 14. The blessing of Abraham with the promise of the spirit. The blessing of Abraham is that all the nations, including Israel, will be blessed in Abraham's seed. And Paul makes a strong point of the fact that the seed is singular and that the seed is Christ in Galatians 3.16. Concurrent with and inseparable from that blessing, then, is the reception of the promised Holy Spirit. It is the baptism by the Spirit which brings us into Christ. By the baptism by the Spirit, we are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, barbarian or civilized, female or male, all are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12:13, Galatians 3:28, Colossians 3:11. All of our blessings from the Father are in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies. They pertain to our possession of the Holy Spirit and to God's possession of us, for we have been bought with a price. The Apostle Peter, who uses precisely the same terminology as Paul, which I think shows Peter's influence by Paul rather than vice versa. The Apostle Peter uses the same terminology as Paul for the Father. Eulogetos ho theus, theos kai pater tu curio hemon, Jesu Christu. Praise be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter also refers to these same blessings, these spiritual blessings, as, quote, an imperishable and unfading inheritance on reserve in the heavens for you. Peter also uses language similar to James in 118 and to Paul in Titus 3.5 in Ephesians 2.4 in speaking of the Father as he, quote, who, according to his great mercy, has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Compare 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 to Ephesians 1, 3. It should be noted here that our use of the Greek text, again, is vital, crucial, not only for the accurate analysis of English texts, but also because the Greek text brings us much closer to the original authors, to their original intent, and more importantly, to the original spiration of the scriptures, the God-breathing of the scriptures. These heavenly blessings are intended by God to be experienced by us on earth. Your will in heaven be done on earth and in time, even now. After all, we are in Christ Jesus here and now. Though certainly by no means completely, Will these blessings be experienced? Otherwise, there would be no room for hope. We would suffer from the disease of full preterism. And we have the Holy Spirit here and now, for we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit ahead of our skis, Ephesians 1.13. Until the day of the liberation of our bodies from corruption, Ephesians 4.30, Romans 8.23, Philippians 3.20. God wills that his will that is done in heaven be done on earth. He is said, in fact, in Malachi 3.10, to open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on his people. In Malachi, 
This promise is fulfilled when God's people offer him the full tithe. And people still want to keep this alive in their telethons and in their preaching and in pastors trying to twist the arms of the congregation to give under pressure. But in Ephesians, the fullness of blessing is said to have already been laid up for us in the heavens in Christ Jesus. He has already fulfilled the full tithe. He's already been the lamb offered fully without spot, without blemish to God as he offered himself totally to God without spot or blemish through the eternal spirit. Our blessings have nothing to do with us offering a tithe and keeping offering tithes. It has to do with Christ offering himself to us, to the father for us rather in Hebrews nine fourteen, Luke twenty three forty six. into your hands. I entrust my spirit. He said, but we must not consider that there is distance between us and those heavenly blessings because they're in the heavens. There is no distance between us and those heavenly blessings in Christ Jesus because we have been raised up together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus and been seated with him there. Ephesians 2 6 ahead of our skis. Our blessings don't have to come to where we are. We have been lifted up to where they are. We have been lifted up in Christ Jesus. We experience these blessings, and this is extremely vital to our practical lives. We experience these blessings to the degree that we transcend ourselves by God's elevating grace. In other words, those heavenly blessings are experienced on the fifth level of consciousness where the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Much more could be unfolded on that and unfurled on that. Right now, it's a flag folded. It needs to be unfurled. But I'll say it again. We experience those blessings to the degree that we transcend ourselves by God's elevating grace. This is what a pristine account of the gospel says in Ephesians. This is the run-on sentence. It continues in verse 4. Insofar as he has elected us in him. Please notice this. He has elected us in him. He's the elect one. We are elected in him. Before the foundation of the universe, the creation of the cosmos here, the foundation of the cosmos is the creation of the universe. Insofar as he has elected us in him before the creation of the universe to be sanctified and without blemish before him, before the father. God elected us in Christ, chose us in him before the creation of the world. In Christ, we are in the Lamb of God. We're said to be without blemish because we're in the Lamb who is without blemish, who took away the sin of the world, who offered himself to God through the eternal spirit without blemish to purify our conscience from dead works that we may serve the living God as his priests on earth. We are a kingdom of priests. So election is not a matter of God choosing some. And this is blasphemy to me now, the more I see it. Not, this is a blasphemous God choosing some for salvation, choosing others and predetermining them to damnation, to an eternity without Christ. That's blasphemous. And that's a caricature of God, which he portrays him as a monster far worse than Hitler, far worse than Satan himself would be. So excuse my preaching. Election 
is not a matter of God choosing some out of the human race and determining them for salvation and others of the human race to be determined for damnation. Christ Jesus is the elect one of God and in him all are elected. You want double predestination? Jesus was the one predestinated to the curse of damnation on the cross. And Jesus was the one predestined for life and blessing by resurrection. And so all are elected in him. We were crucified with him. Buried with him. Raised with him. Raised up with him. Seated with him. In heavenly places. The more you realize that, the more you'll realize the fullness of the blessedness that the Father has laid up for you in the heavens. You'll have a life that is heavenly, but you'll still be good for the earth. So, there's no such thing as he's so heavenly good that he's no good for earth. That's, that's ridiculous. The more heavenly good you are, the better you are on earth. The better you can walk around on earth the better you can live your life on earth. We actually see all humanity as in Christ. We're privileged to see this. We're privileged to have this. Don't let go of that perception. If you have it, God gave it to you. Not everybody in the world has it. That's why there's so much hatred, criticism, virulent vituperation and slander and maligning and hating, and canceling, and all the stuff that people do. They don't have the perception of all are elected in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean we're saved by knowledge. That's Gnosticism. It doesn't mean we're saved by our faith. That's Fetaism. It means that we're saved by the grace of God in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and that includes all of humanity. Wake up to it. If you've awakened to it, you're responsible to think that way when you look at all of human beings. And we have that perception. What a blessedness it is to have it. Paul had it. The love of Christ controls me now because I have determined that if one died for all, then all died. He sees all the human race in Christ, no no longer in the flesh. And so it determined something in him. It gave him a new primal urge. And the new primal urge is the love of God for all of humankind. That's the transformation. And so God elected us in Christ. As the scripture says in him, all are accepted for the scripture says that in the father or that the father, because of him, we have been highly favored in the beloved in Ephesians one, six, this is tantamount to saying we are elected in him, beloved in him or accepted in the beloved means elected in him. Election and love are one. The beloved and the elect one are one in Christ Jesus. For to be elected is to be beloved. For as it says again in Malachi 1-2, Jacob have I loved. To be loved by God and to be elected by God is one thing in Christ Jesus. To be loved by God and to be elected by God is one thing in Christ Jesus. And God loved the world. So the father said, and this is important too. The father said of Jesus of Nazareth on the occasion of his baptism, you are my son. 
There are times when the father speaks audibly. And when he speaks audibly, you better listen up. You are my son, he said. My beloved one. That's Luke 3.22. On the occasion of his transfiguration in Luke 9.35, the father said, this is my son, my elect one. The one who is the father's beloved is the same one who is the father's elect one. The father, God the father, isn't confused. The ancient of days, as Daniel calls him, does not suffer from dementia. He recognizes his son, both as his beloved and as his elect one. On one occasion, he calls Jesus, my beloved. On another, he calls the same Jesus, my elect one. In Jesus Christ, election and love are one. The beloved and the elect are one in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, all of humanity are loved and all of humanity are elected, chosen. The election preceded creation. We get all excited about God's act of creation, but something preceded it. Election is the first act of God that we know of besides the eternal actions of the divine processions. It's the first action of God we know of, and in one sense, the most important. Election has to do with the external term of the divine missions, that external term being the objective of the divine missions, or the purpose of the divine persons, or the goal of the triune God for all of created reality. God elected us in him before the creation of the world. That election is all wrapped up in love. The subject today, simply, in love. And it's further demonstrated in the next phrase in Ephesians. The next phrase simply says, en agape, in love. Thank you, Father, for letting this message hang together. I said in love, so here it is. En agape, A-G-A. P, A to E, agape, en agape. That's a central phrase in this exegesis, en agape, in love. Now, those who want to make the run-on sentence more readable, and I like the way translations do this. They want to chop it up into several English sentences so that it will be proper and appropriate and understandable by us. I, I appreciate them doing that, and in translations, it might be helpful. But when they try to make the run-on sentence chopped up a little bit they make it and make it more readable, the phrase enagape is the beginning of a new sentence. Maybe your own translation reads that way. In fact, they translate verse 5, in love he predestined us or predestinated us. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, which I find highly respectable in most cases, does this. But in its notes, again, a respectable thing, there are notes in Ephesians 1-4 that they, they note the fact that verses 3 to 14 are one sentence in Greek. That confirms our theory. The King James Version has, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. En agape, then enjoys prominence in this sentence. 
I think more so than English translations give it its due. I think en agape should be perceived as the motivation, and we have to use that term loosely when we're speaking of the eternal God, but it is the motivation of the Father, not only in predestination, but also in electing us in Christ Jesus. This is fitting, especially of the in the light of the insight that loving and electing are one thing. And that in Jesus Christ, the beloved, Ephesians 1, 6, and the elect one, Luke 23, 35, are one. God's purpose of the ages then, Ephesians 3, 11, is proposed in Christ. So it is fitting in my view, and I've done this and taken responsibility for it as a translation, to put in love in a more prominent position in this run-on sentence. So here's how I translate verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. Here's my translation. Insofar as in love he elected us in him before the foundation or the creation of the universe, to be sanctified and without blemish before him, predestinating us for the adoption through Jesus Christ for himself. I think that gives a lot more clarity to the translation where you put love in love in its prominence. Again, here it is. Insofar as in love he elected us in him before the foundation of the universe to be sanctified and without blemish before him, predestinating us for adoption through Jesus Christ for himself. Peter received the same insight. So you don't need to rob Peter to pay Paul on this one. He uses the phrase elect in relation to the foreknowledge or the prescience of God's omniscience. 1 Peter 1, 1 to 2. Adding in 1 Peter 1, 20 that Christ was foreknown. Using precisely the phrase of Ephesians 1, 4, pro cataboles cosmu, or before the foundation of the cosmos, better for us, the creation of the universe. It's a phrase also deployed in Matthew 13, 35, 25, 34, Luke 11, 50, John 17, 24, Hebrews 4, 3, and 9, 26, Revelation 13, 8, and 17, 8, before the creation of the universe. It's absurd to call the universe God or to call God the universe, since the universe proceeded from God but is not God. Unlike Jesus Christ, the Son who proceeded from God and is God. There's no getting around the fact that the election of Jesus Christ and the election of us is inextricably united. 1 Peter 2.4 calls Jesus Christ the elect one of God and precious or highly regarded. We are actually called highly regarded in him. So there's no getting around that the election of Jesus Christ as the beloved and the election of us is intricately woven together. You can't separate the two. And the us is all of humanity, as I will show you in a moment. So there's no getting around it. God's glorious grace has loved us in him, elected us in him, predestined us through him, to adoption to the Father. Now, this topic of adoption is something which we call a four-point hypothesis 
Lonergan, and this I'm going to introduce in DLT, I think, is called a four-point hypothesis in which Bernard Lonergan, the much maligned Jesuit theologian, spoke of a relationship or a hypothesis with the four divine relations, which are paternity, filiation, active, and passive spiration. The adoption that Paul speaks about in Ephesians 1.5, to which we have been predestinated, is a created communication of the divine nature by which we are loved by the Father, just as the Father loves the Son of his eternal begetting. We are loved by the Father just exactly as he loves the Son of his eternal begetting, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so the adoption by which we have been predestinated through Jesus Christ is a created communication of the divine nature. We are partakers now of the divine nature by which we are loved by the Father in the same way and with the same intensity as the son of his eternal begetting. With regard to our adoption and in keeping with our theological exegesis, I want to present Lonergan's thought himself as recorded in the Triune God Systematics. Bernard Lonergan is, is an amazing theologian. Those who, de, who write because they've been inspired by him rarely quote him because they don't want to give credit where credit is due. And those who do quote him oftentimes misrepresent him, and I hope that will never be the case with me. But I'd like to present Lonergan's thought as recorded in his book called The Triune God Systematics. Please listen carefully to this extended quote. This is, what I, this is all that's on my mind right now. I'm just hammering it to you, so deal with it. Triune God Systematics. On account of the redemptive work of the mediator, God the Father also loves the just, that's us, as he loves his own son. As it is said, you have loved them even as you have loved me, John 17, 23, 17, 26. So then, if the Father loves us as he loves his own son, the Father loves us though we were his, as though we were his children. And our adoption as children of God is surely a consequence of this love. Again, if the Father loves us as he loves his own son, he surely loves us and gives to us the Holy Spirit. From all this, we gain understanding of the order of the divine missions. Here's we're going to cross-pollinate with doing and living theology. The order of divine missions. Listen very carefully to this. For the Son was sent so that the Father might be able to love us as he loves his own Son. And the Spirit is sent Because the Father does love us as he loves his own Son. Indeed, this love, which is, as it were, proper to the divine persons, is what implies and grounds the absolutely supernatural order. The Son was sent that the Father would be able to love us as he loves his Son. And the Spirit was sent because the Father does love us us as he loves his own son and the father loves all of humanity as he loves his own son so look at the rest of humanity that way 
And guess what will happen? The love of Christ will control you because you've determined that if one died for all, then all died when he died. And all are alive when he became alive. And therefore, all are justified in him who was justified in his resurrection. The just, therefore, who are loved as God the Father loves his son is everybody. That's one thing Lonergan didn't make a point of. I'm making a point of it. We do stand on the shoulders of other theologians, but we stand there and we see places. We see, we might even see further, and I'm not saying I do with Lonergan's case, but we might even see further than those upon whose shoulders we stand. After all, they're affording us a higher view, a better horizon. So in closing, the explanatory note on the bottom of page 483 of this Triune God book Note 48 says, that is, the order is supernatural because the love in which we are caught up is the divine love that is really proper to divine persons. So I want to add an important note of my own to this. Adding the insight that we received from Romans after a couple years. God the Father also loves the just as he loves his own son takes on a decidedly universalistic meaning when it talks about the just, since the just must definitely define all of humanity. Romans 5, 16b to 519, my translation is still enduring a final edit before we print it up. But Romans 5, 16b to 519 reads like this. On the one hand, one sin brought judgment resulting in the universal sentence of condemnation. But on the other hand, the gift coming after many trespasses brought the universal sentence of acquittal. For if by the trespass of the one, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life with death dethroned through the one, the righteous one, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one sin came condemnation to all people, so through the righteous act of one came the justification of life to all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were constituted as sinners, so also through the obedience of the, of the one, the many were constituted as the just or righteous. The many and all are juxtaposed in Romans 5:18 to 19, and they equal each other. It's a distich. A distich means they equal each other. The many equals the all. The all equals the many. The obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of his Father resulted in all being made righteous. That's a fact. That's done. That's how you view the human race. The good, the bad, the ugly, the pretty, the glamorous. And it's harder to love the glamorous. Even the all about me and cancel everybody else out generation. Moreover, Romans 8.30, those whom he justified, those he glorified. 
Who did he justify? All. Who does he glorify? All. In Christ Jesus, to the praise of God's glorious grace. You see, people like to argue with all being saved. Well, since 2009, I've been showing it hour after hour, hour after hour, verse by verse, word by word in the scriptures. So if you've got a one-sentence rebuttal for it, I'm all for it. Just don't do it now. Because then I'll hit you back with seven or eight years of study in the original Greek text. The just are guaranteed the future experience of the light of glory as adopted children. And they already have the status of the children of God. Remember this verse, 1 John 3, 1 to 3. Look how great a love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. In other words, the world not only doesn't know that we are sons, the world doesn't know that they are sons. It's a matter of being awakened. It's not Gnosticism. We aren't saved by knowledge. We aren't saved because we know we're saved. But neither is it fetism where we're saved by our own faith. It isn't Gnosticism. It isn't fetism. It's grace. It's the glorious grace of God whereby salvation was enacted in the person of Christ crucified. And it was all done right there when he said it's done. When he said it's finished. Look, I'm making everything new and it is is done in Revelation 21.6, rhyming so perfectly with Tetelestai in John 19.30. God from the throne is Christ from the cross, announcing that it's done. This is Operation Epsilon. This is you inhabiting eternity with God. This is you who perhaps through being crushed in your spirit have been elevated and transcended yourselves. The world's view is that we should all assert ourselves with self-assertion. God's view is that we should transcend ourselves by the elevating grace of God. And when we transcend ourselves, we put off the old man. We put on the new man. And the new man is renewed to understand that he or she has all these spiritual blessings, all the fullness of the blessedness of God in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. They don't have to wait to earn their escrow so that it comes down to them. They just have to look around and realize they're seated in the same place where all those blessings are and therefore we experience them in the measure that we transcend our old selves in the love of God and when the love of God is poured out in our hearts we become filled up with all the fullness of God as we realize the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge it surpasses the knowledge of preachers it surpasses the knowledge of popes and I want to clarify I, I said the pope was maligned as having said that Jesus was only a human being. That's not true. It was a troll. I'm, I'm sorry I even referred to a troll on the Internet. He did not say that. He was just simply sh- revealing the divinity of Christ. So I'm not going to uh, give that a strike against Pope Francis. I got too many other strikes against the religious establishment. So I'll take that one off the board. But it doesn't matter 
what preachers say. It doesn't matter what people say in a 30-day-long telethon where they tell you you have to tithe to receive God's blessing. We have all the fullness of spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus because Jesus Christ not only offered the full tithe to God, he offered himself to God as the blemishless, spotless, blameless Lamb of God. And we are in him. And therefore, we are without blemish because we're in the lamb without blemish. And that's because God did all that in love. So, closing number two. Look how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. It simply means when we have this hope, we put off the old man. We put on the new man who's renewed in this knowledge and we transcend the old self. And in the measure that we transcend the old self and come to the levels of consciousness that are the fourth and the fifth, where the love of God is poured out into our hearts, we begin to experience right now on earth in time, even now, the fullness of the spiritual blessedness that we have in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies. And that's what the pristine account of the gospel is giving us in Ephesians. So the adoption for which we have been predestinated in love through Jesus Christ has a future eschatological culmination. In Romans 8.23, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit sigh deeply in ourselves as we eagerly await the enjoyment of the full privileges of our adoption. That is, the redemption of of our bodies. We are saved in hope, he goes on to say in verse 24 of Romans 8. Paul says it in 8:24. Peter says this, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has given us a new birth into a living hope. An animating hope, an animating expectation, 1 Peter 1:3. So we live in hope. The experience of full privilege of our adoption is in our future, but God is present to our future. Operation Epsilon sees as God sees. He inhabits eternity with him who is of a crushed spirit. That is, with him who has had it with the old life, has had it with the evil cosmos, has had it with the evil age. The crushed spirit is a person who begins to have the perception of God who is present already to your future. In that measure, faith is the presence to the future that God is Faith is the presence to the future that God gives. And so we experience in some measure in the present, God's presence in our future. We begin to experience in some meaningful measure our future adoption and the privileges of it even now. But not completely, not until the redemption of these bodies, which we try so desperately to preserve The experience 
of the full privilege of our adoption is in our future. Though God is already present to our future. So theologically, as we're doing a theological exegesis, or Christologically speaking, we are created participants in the secondary act of the Son's existence, which is his incarnation. In the incarnation, Jesus Christ took on a secondary act of existence by becoming flesh. We have that communicated to us. We participate in the Son's secondary act of existence. As such, we died, and our life is hid with Christ in God. Lastly, regarding the notion, the love in which we are caught up is the divine love. The love in which we are caught up is the divine love. I'm not waiting for a rapture. I'm in the rapture, being caught up in God's love. The love of God poured out in our hearts. We are caught up in the love of God. And there is no partial rapture. There is no rescue of a few of humanity, a few million, to, so that God can punish the rest of humanity. That is a misnomer. That is a false doctrine. It is a doctrine which I'm ashamed to have proclaimed at one time, but it was before given insights into the true eschatology of God. And it, is, it has everything to do with the true insight, God's coming to stay and to transform all of created reality, raise all of the dead, and give all life in Christ Jesus. So, this love in which we are caught up is the good that overcomes evil. In Romans 12, 21, don't be overcome by the evil. People watch the news, and whether they're on one side or the other side of the impeachment thing, they get all wired. They get mad at the liberals, or the liberals get mad at the right-wingers, and they accuse each other. And You know why? It's all about this life. It's all about this world. It doesn't mean a damn thing. None of it does. What means something is Ephesians, the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, the primal epistle of the apostle of God through the will of God. That's what we're to think on. And we are not to be overcome by evil. And is there evil? Yes. Is there evil on the left? Yes. Is there evil on the right? Yes. There's evil everywhere in this age. And if you're caught up in it in one way or another, you're a loser already. You are overcome by the evil. You're taking sides in an evil versus evil. You are in the evil. Do not be overcome by the evil, but overcome the evil by the good. And the good is the love of God poured out in our hearts. Ephesians is where I want to think. I want to think in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I don't want to think in terms of this evil, transient, passing age. All right. It is only by being caught up in the divine love and being caught up in it that we become imitators of God. In Ephesians 5.1, imitators of God in terms of forgiveness. Forgive one another even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Who does that apply to? Everybody. 
Father, forgive them. It wasn't just the people standing around the cross. It was his vista which he saw all of humanity in all of its times in that vista in which he saw there are none that seeks after God. There's none that does good, not even one. He sees all of humanity from the viewpoint of the cross, from the vista of the cross, and he sees them all at once, past, present, and future. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. When they say the name of Jesus Christ in surprise or in anger or in reaction or in disgust, they don't even know what they're doing. When they do this or that or this evil or that evil, they don't even know what they're doing. Father, I see it all from here. Father, forgive them. And the Father did forgive them. Be imitators of God, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you, as God forgave you for Christ's sake. And then what's the next verse? Be imitators of God, imitators of God in the release of forgiveness. There's only one unforgivable sin, and it's the blasphemy of the spirit of grace when we don't forgive. When we don't forgive, God doesn't release us from our own unforgiveness. That isn't an unpardonable sin that sends people into hell. Another blasphemous and stupid interpretation of Mark 3.29. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not allow for any eternally unforgiven sin. The only sin that God doesn't forgive, and it's only in the sense of right now, in time, in this moment, is if you do not forgive, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Meaning, the only unforgivable sin is your unforgiveness. You've seen people in this. I've seen people for 30 years that haven't, they've been here. They've listened to the word of God for 30 years. They're never in the spiritual life because they're holding on to unforgiveness of somebody right in the family, right in the same church. They don't even experience the spiritual life. They see it from outside. They're looking in. They're in an outer darkness looking in at the banqueting table because they're not experiencing forgiveness because they're not releasing forgiveness. So in this age or the one to come, which is this age, God doesn't forgive unforgiveness. Only in the sense that as you are holding on to unforgiveness, you have no possibility of imitating God, who is the one who forgave all. So, it is by being caught up in the divine love, and only by being caught up in divine love, that we become imitators of God, and we become perfect as our heavenly Father Our father in the heavens is perfect in love. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that as your son has been lifted up and exalted in our midst through the word, because he has been lifted up and exalted in the cross and in his resurrection and ascension and his session at your right hand right now, Father, because your son has been lifted up, we know that you have taken glory in it. And we pray that you use this message to drag everyone to yourself because there's a lot of people, some in this room today, who do resist this message. So they got to be dragged. Some are receiving the message, so they are drawn and they love the drawing. Others resist it, so they're dragged against their will. And they will resist the message. They'll leave the message. They won't come back to the message until the Lord drags them. But drag or draw, we're all coming.
If I am lifted up, I will draw, drag all to myself. Draw and drag, both work. I will draw or drag all to myself. No one comes to me unless the Father drags him, draws him. And if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all to myself. Father, we thank you that your son has drawn all of our judgment to himself, all of condemnation to himself, so that he can draw us into himself, the resurrected one. Thank you, Father, that in him, that Jesus Christ was predestinated to the damnation of becoming that which you hate on the cross, and that he was also elected to the great and glorious salvation that you revealed in him in his resurrection. And thank you, Father, because you predestined him to be and to become that which you hate, which is sin. We have become and been made the righteousness of God in him. This is too unspeakable, too un- inarticulable. But we can only say, Father, thank you, and that it is to the praise of the glory of your grace.